Welcome to For What It's Worth, a podcast from Raymond James, designed to help you plan, invest, and live smarter. Hi, listeners, and thanks for joining me. We're glad to have you with us. You can find this episode and more For What It's Worth on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and RaymondJames.com. There are a number of important documents that should accompany a well-rounded financial plan, and many of them are to help ensure that your intentions are really clear if you're not in a position to express them yourself. With so many types of powers of attorney and wills, directives, forms, it's easy to get a little bit mixed up with which document designates what and who should have them in place to begin with and when. Here to help unravel some of those details about these important planning elements, I'm really pleased to be joined in the studio by Raymond James private wealth strategist, Liz Ochoa. Liz, thank you so much for sitting down with me today. Thank you for having me. Before we get into some of these specific documents, let's start with kind of an early question. When do people need to have some of these estate plan basics in place? When should we get started? Really, everyone should at least have two documents in place when they when they're thinking about their estate plan, the durable power of attorney, that's for finances, and a healthcare proxy. And you really need to get these in place as soon as you're 18, because your parents can't help you anymore when you're 18. And of course, if you're older, it's good to have those in place as well. Listeners, take that to heart, 18 and up. That's that's an early start, maybe earlier than some of our listeners might expect. So one of one of those two that you mentioned right from the start that pretty much everyone listening needs to have in place financial powers of attorney, and maybe specifically durable financial powers of attorney. What does that mean? What does it control? It is really for all your finances. So think bank accounts, uh, retirement accounts, that sort of thing, checking account. And really what will happen is a person will act in your stead if you're incapacitated. And I should note that these powers of attorney, are they stop at your death, and then a will or your revocable trust will take over. So you have to have someone you trust, um, and that could be a parent, it could be a spouse, it could be a family, other family member or a friend, but really someone you trust who can handle finances. So this is still during your lifetime. You're not able to maybe express or advocate for yourself, but it's not the point at which your assets are actually being you know, divided at the point of your passing. Yeah, and it'll go through all sorts of items and what person can and cannot do. So, you know, they could potentially sign sign a real estate deal for you. If you don't want that, <laughs> it's something you don't give them a power to do. It also, in more modern durable powers of attorney, will also say what can happen with your digital assets. Mm. So you can take over someone's Yahoo account, for example or their pictures on Snapchat or or something like that. Interesting. I'm sure that's probably a component that maybe has been overlooked or is just coming to the forefront. So you mentioned, and I'm sure it comes up with a lot of these two, selecting someone that you trust. How do you see that often playing out? Who, Who do people often select for this important role? So if you're married, it'll usually be your spouse. And if you're not married, looking to someone who is perhaps a little younger if you're older, um, or someone who's a little older if you're younger. So it could be a parent, it could be your child, if you trust your child with your financial decisions, and that might change over the years. Um, It could be a good friend. So that's talking about the financial powers of attorney. 
Let's talk about durable medical power of attorney. And these are these are two separate items. You could yeah. designate two separate people for these. And often a lot of people do um, if they are not comfortable with the financial person to handle the medical. So let's talk about the medical piece of it. When does this come into play and what does it have control over? So there's a couple different documents. So the durable health power of attorney um, is also known as a healthcare proxy. So it will come into play if you're incapacitated and someone can make medical decisions for you. As far as other items that people hear of, like a living will, that's if you... um, it's some people call them do not resuscitate. That's really at the end of your life, and people are going to determine what kind of life saving measures are okay for you. So, a, a durable medical power of attorney, same as a healthcare proxy, that's a term that comes up. Is that the same as a healthcare surrogate? A healthcare surrogate, again, is someone who makes healthcare decisions in, in your stead um, for you. And yes, it's, it's a very similar sort of document. So de- helping determine maybe that the the level or the direction of the care that you're receiving when you're in this incapacitated state. Yeah. And then again, this has to be someone you trust. And really, you should be discussing this with whoever you're giving this power to of what you do and don't want to have happen. Um, I think that helps that person when they're in these situations make those decisions. You distinguished it. And I'd like to dig in because it's I'm not totally clear on the difference between these medical powers of attorney and a living will or medical directives. Do you need both? Do they govern two different things? Are they the same people? So depending on who's drafting the document for you, it might be all in one document. Okay. Um, and it really also depends on state law. So the the living will might be in your durable power of attorney for medical reasons. It might not be. It might be a separate document. Um, and you know, those are things to keep in mind. I also want to point out a lot of doctors and hospitals, um, and facilities such as nursing homes will have their own power of attorney for medical reasons. So the idea is to keep these all aligned with what you want to have happen. For the ones that the, these documents that we've addressed so far, the different financial powers of attorney, the different uh, medical designations, who are you going to to have these put in place? You said that sometimes some of these care institutions may have their own procedure for it. If that's not the case, are you going to your estate planning attorney to put these together? You can go to an estate planning attorney. There are forms online. Um, some states have their own, I will call it just a form. You check off certain things and you get it notarized or witnessed. Um, some people use the ones for medical facilities instead of getting a, a separate healthcare proxy. So these are, they're everywhere. And um, they're, they're actually fairly easy to execute. So far, the ones that these elements that we've covered uh, occur when you're incapacitated, but not at the point of death. Now we're at last will and testament. Is this, again, another element that everybody needs in addition to these other, you know, governing incapacity sort of documents? Yes, because if you don't have one, the government has one for you. So if it's not something you want to have happen in a certain way, then it, it, it will be determined on, on your for you by the government. And a lot of people don't like that idea. So a will is something that gives the power of a personal representative or an executor. It's the same thing, different names, to come in and 
Make sure your taxes are paid. Make sure your final expenses are paid. Make sure your assets are all gathered and are distributed to whomever you want them to be distributed to. And really, uh, it's a court-supervised uh, function, so they, the court will be reviewing it. Some states are faster than others with probate, so it could be something fairly quick, or it could be a long process. And again, this is one that you say age of 18 should have in place? I Yes, I would say if there's, especially if there's a family that has significant wealth, mm. I would have something in place for them. And then look to other assets that they may have. It might be very simple, but a couple page document at that age. Let's talk about trusts. So far, those haven't come up. Revocable or living trusts. How do these interact? You know, we're, we're, the, the list is growing here of important documents. How does this compare to or interact with some of these other pieces that we've already talked about? So a revocable living trust is a document that is basically a will substitute. Um, so what would happen is you would use your will. And after, if you have anything in there that you want to specifically have in your will, your assets will pour into your revocable trust. So anything that wasn't already titled in your revocable trust. And this is where you can get into different types of, if you want, uh, different types of bequests, different types of trusts, if you want it to go into tr further trust after you die. Um, what the big difference between the two documents that a lot of clients aren't aware of is a will is a public document. So mm. anyone can go in and take a look at who's getting what. Um, might, you might not know the dollars, but you might know that someone's getting the house. Um, a revocable trust is a private document. The public does not have access to it. So is it still that you should have both if, you, if you know, this is something that you're interested in, and then in your last will and testament, you're pointing to that trust yeah. as the place for those assets to go and potentially gain that little bit of extra privacy along the way? Exactly. Um, the other thing you have to do is make sure your assets are titled in your revocable trust before you die. Otherwise, you really haven't done much, so all your assets will still be public knowledge. Mm. Good, a good reminder there. Uh, let's talk about beneficiary forms, because there are a number of accounts, you know, retirement accounts and individual accounts that we all have, and there's an option to designate a beneficiary for those. How does that decision interact with all of these other representatives that you've nominated for important pieces of decision making? Yeah, that's a great question. So I know when we all get, have our 401ks or our IRAs, one of the things, one of the forms they throw right at you is who you're going to have as your designated beneficiary. So these types of assets, while they're part of your taxable estate, if you have a taxable estate, they don't go through a will or a revocable trust unless you happen to name the revocable trust. So it's going to pass outside of probate. Um, so in a way, that's a very easy way to get assets to someone you want to have assets um, without having to do all this other extra work. However... <laughs> Um, oftentimes, we have seen where they want certain asset to go to a certain person, and the designated beneficiary says someone else. And what happens is that the designated beneficiary overrules the revocable trust. So you have to make sure everything is cohesive and oh. makes sense. So if you have, if you have potentially these two different um, documents pointing in different directions, that could cause problems. That could cause problems. If, legally, it's going to be the... 
designated beneficiary. Family-wise, it might be an interesting discussion. Is there any, uh, you know, person or uh, entity document that you want to avoid naming as a direct beneficiary of one of these accounts? Most definitely a minor child. Um, Legally, minor children can't own property. Um, States might have different tweaks to that. But so really what's going to happen is a guardian's going to be in charge of that for the minor person. You might not like how that is. A judge might be um, reviewing it every time a payment is made. You might not like that either. So minor beneficiaries, there are other vehicles such as trusts that that they could be a beneficiary of, and then they get it, you know, whenever you feel is appropriate, age 25, age 21, age 50. <laughs> Let's talk about letters of instruction. What is the, all of these feel like, you know, elements of instruction to people yeah. that you're trusting with these details. So what are letters of instruction specifically? So really, it's going to be, at least most of the time, what you want your funeral to be like, where you want your remains to go. Um, if you want to be cremated, if you want to have your body donated for science or that sort of thing. Those are very helpful, especially right after you pass for those that you leave behind. Um, Oftentimes, or sometimes I should say, I'll I'll see the letters of instruction in the will. Most people don't look at the will for a few weeks. So something might have happened that you didn't intend at your, you want to have happen at your passing. Interesting. That's a good note, because I think a lot, I I associate my, myself those final instructions with something that would be paired with the will. How do you get it into your loved one's hands quicker than your will would? Well, if you remember the people you call when you die, um, hopefully the attorney will can give you those documents right away. Um, you might find these documents in your, you know, in your loved one's house. But it might not be so easy to find. So those those initial people to call, it, it makes a huge difference because the attorney can get you what you need right away. Well, and, and then also, hopefully you've told someone. Yeah. Giving, giving them a heads up of where yeah. to find some of these important yeah. things is not a bad idea. Let's talk about that list of contacts of, of who to call. How detailed does this need to be? Is it something complex? Is it simple? Is it notarized? Is it saved? Is it just handed in an envelope? What What do we mean by a list yeah. of contacts here? It's, it's usually fairly simple. So your accountant, if you have one, your attorney, your life insurance person, your I can think financial advisor, of course, um, those are the folks that really know where things are. At least most of the assets are, just because they've been talking to you for a long time. So it doesn't have to be that complex. It could just be, I have an account here. You need to call this person. Um, This person's my CPA. Uh, Just to give them instructions of where to start. We've talked through quite a few different uh, documents, vehicles, elements here. I'm sure some of our listeners are thinking, okay, you know, it's probably time that I have some of these in place or make an update in some cases. What do you recommend to them as a first step for getting started? Take a look at all your gross assets, um, your gross estate. So it would be your assets and your liabilities. And then really the harder part, that's the easy part. The harder part is thinking about what you want to have happen. If you want certain people to get certain family heirlooms, if you want some charity to get something, these are all the things you have to think about and what makes sense for you. There's no right or wrong answer. It's just thinking about what you want to have happen. 
our Raymond James private wealth strategist, Liz Ochoa. Liz, thank you again for sitting down and walking through these important estate planning elements. We really appreciate your perspective. Thank you so much. Listeners, thanks for tuning in. You can find more episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and RaymondJames.com. So be sure to subscribe. For what it's worth, I'll see you next time. All opinions and information, including any price references or market forecasts, correspond to the recording date listed in this episode's description. Any performance figures noted do not include fees or charges, which would reduce an investor's returns. The information contained in this podcast is not research, nor does it constitute the provision of any investment, financial, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or recommendations to the listener. Raymond James and its financial advisors do not provide tax or legal advice, and you should discuss any tax or legal matters with the appropriate professional. Past performance is not an indication of future results. There is no assurance any investment strategy will be successful. Investing involves risk, and investors may incur a profit or a loss. Investment products are not deposits, not FDIC and CUA insured, not insured by any government agency, not bank guaranteed, subject to risk and may lose value. Copyright 2020 Raymond James and Associates Inc. Member New York Stock Exchange, SIPC. Copyright 2020 Raymond James Financial Services Inc. Member FINRA, SIPC. Raymond James and Associates Inc. and Raymond James Financial Services Inc. are affiliates of Raymond James Bank.